Chapters 37 and 38 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 37. If Theobald and Christina had not been too well pleased when Miss Pontifex first took Ernest in hand, they were still less so when the connection between the two was interrupted so prematurely. They said they had made sure from what their sister had said that she was going to make Ernest her heir. I do not think she had given them so much as a hint to this effect. Theobald indeed gave Ernest to understand that she had done so in a letter which will be given shortly but if Theobald wanted to make himself disagreeable, a trifle light as air would forthwith assume in his imagination whatever form was most convenient to him. I do not think they had even made up their minds what Alethea was to do with her money before they knew of her being at the point of death, and as I have said already, if they thought it likely that Ernest would be made heir over their own heads without having at any rate a life interest in the bequest, they would have soon thrown obstacles in the way of further intimacy between aunt and nephew. This, however, did not bar their right to feeling aggrieved now that neither they nor Ernest had taken anything at all, and they could profess disappointment on their boy's behalf which they would have been too proud to admit upon their own. In fact, it was only amiable of them to be disappointed under these circumstances. Christina said that the will was simply fraudulent, and was convinced that it could be upset if she and Theobald went the right way to work. Theobald, she said, should go before the Lord Chancellor, not in full court, but in chambers, where he could explain the whole matter. Or, Perhaps it would be even better if she were to go herself, and I dare not trust myself to describe the reverie to which this last idea gave rise. I believe in the end Theobald died, and the Lord Chancellor, who had become a widower a few weeks earlier, made her an offer which, however, she firmly but not ungratefully declined. She should ever, she said, continue to think of him as a friend. At this point, the cook came in, saying the butcher had called, and what would she please to order? I think Theobald must have had an idea that there was something behind the bequest to me, but he said nothing about it to Christina. He was angry and felt wronged, because he could not get at Alethea to give her a piece of his mind, any more than he had been able to get at his father. "'It is so mean of people,' he exclaimed to himself to inflict an injury of this sort, and then shirk facing those whom they have injured. Let us hope that, at any rate, they and I may meet in heaven. But of this he was doubtful, for when people had done so great a wrong as this, it was hardly to be supposed that they would go to heaven at all, and as for meeting them in another place, the idea never so much as entered his mind. One so angry and, of late, so little used to contradiction, might be trusted, however, to avenge himself upon someone, and Theobald had long since developed the organ, by means of which he might vent spleen with least risk and greatest satisfaction to himself. This organ, it may be guessed, 
was nothing else than Ernest. To Ernest, therefore, he proceeded to unburden himself, not personally, but by letter. "'You ought to know,' he wrote, "'that your Aunt Alethea had given your mother and me to understand that it was her wish to make you her heir. In the event, of course, of your conducting yourself in such a manner as to give her confidence in you. As a matter of fact, however, she has left you nothing.' and the whole of her property has gone to your godfather, Mr. Overton. Your mother and I are willing to hope that if she lived longer you would have yet succeeded in winning her good opinion, but it's too late to think of this now. The carpentering and organ-building must at once be discontinued. I never believed in the project, and have seen no reason to alter my original opinion. I am not sorry for your own sake that it is to be at an end, nor, I am sure, will you regret it yourself in after years. A few words more as regards your own prospects. You have, as I believe you know, a small inheritance, which is yours legally under your grandfather's will. This bequest was made inadvertently, and I believe entirely through a misunderstanding on the lawyer's part. The bequest was probably intended not to take effect till after the death of your mother and myself, Nevertheless, as the will is actually worded, it will now be at your command if you live to be twenty-one years old. From this, however, large deductions must be made. There will be legacy duty, and I do not know whether I am entitled to deduct the expenses of your education and maintenance from birth to your coming of age. I shall not in all likelihood insist on this right to the full, if you conduct yourself properly." but a considerable sum should certainly be deducted. There will therefore remain very little, say one thousand pounds or two thousand pounds at the outside, as what will be actually yours, but the strictest account shall be rendered you in due time. This, let me warn you most seriously, is all that you must expect from me. Even Ernest saw that it was not from Theobald at all. At any rate, till after my death, which for aught any of us know may be yet many years distant. It is not a large sum, but it is sufficient if supplemented by steadiness and earnestness of purpose. Your mother and I gave you the name Ernest, hoping that it would remind you continually of— But I really cannot copy more of this effusion. It was all the same old will-shaking game, and came practically to this, that Ernest was no good— and that if he went on as he was going now, he would probably have to go about the streets begging without any shoes or stockings soon after he had left school, or at any rate, college, and that he, Theobald, and Christina were almost too good for this world altogether. After he had written this, Theobald felt quite good-natured, and sent the Mrs. Thompson of the moment even more soup and wine than her usual, not illiberal, allowance. Ernest was deeply, passionately upset by his father's letter. To think that even his dear aunt, the one person of his relations whom he really loved, should have turned against him and thought badly of him after all. This was the unkindest cut of all. In the hurry of her illness, Miss Pontifex, while thinking only of his welfare, had omitted to make such small present mention of him as would have made his father's innuendos stingless. 
and her illness being infectious, she had not seen him after its nature was known. I myself did not know of Theobald's letter, nor think enough about my godson to guess what might easily be his state. It was not till many years afterwards that I found Theobald's letter in the pocket of an old portfolio, which Ernest had used at school, and in which other old letters and school documents were collected, which I have used in this book. He had forgotten that he had it, but told me when he saw it that he remembered it as the first thing that made him begin to rise against his father, in a rebellion which he recognized as righteous, though he dared not openly avow it. Not the least serious thing was that it would, he feared, be his duty to give up the legacy his grandfather had left him. For if it was his only through a mistake, how could he keep it? During the rest of the half-year Ernest was listless and unhappy. He was very fond of some of his schoolfellows, but afraid of those whom he believed to be better than himself, and prone to idealize everyone into being his superior, except those who were obviously a good deal beneath him. He held himself much too cheap, and because he was without that physical strength and vigor which he so much coveted, and also because he knew he shirked his lessons, he believed that he was without anything which could deserve the name of a good quality. He was naturally bad, and one of those for whom there was no place for repentance, though he sought it even with tears. So he shrank out of sight of those whom in his boyish way he idolized, never for a moment suspecting that he might have capacities to the full as high as theirs, though of a different kind and fell in more with those who were reputed of the baser sort, with whom he could at any rate be upon equal terms. Before the end of the half-year he had dropped from the estate to which he had been raised during his aunt's stay at Roughborough, and his old dejection varied, however, with bursts of conceit rivaling those of his mother, resumed its sway over him. Pontifex, said Dr. Skinner, who had fallen upon him in the hall one day like a moral landslip before he had time to escape. Do you never laugh? Do you always look so preternaturally grave? The doctor had not meant to be unkind, but the boy turned crimson and escaped. There was one place where he was happy, and that was the old church of St. Michael, where his friend the organist was practicing. About this time cheap editions of the great oratorios began to appear, and Ernest got them all as soon as they were published. He would sometimes sell a schoolbook to a second-hand dealer, and buy a number or two of the Messiah, or the Creation, or Elijah, with the proceeds. This was simply cheating his papa and mamma. But Ernest was falling low again, or thought he was, and he wanted the music much, and the salast, or whatever it was little. Sometimes the organist would go home, leaving his keys with Ernest so that he could play by himself, and lock up the organ and the church in time to get back for calling over. At other times, while his friend was playing, he would wander round the church, looking at the monuments in the old stained-glass windows, enchanted as regards both ears and eyes at once. Once the old rector got hold of him as he was watching a new window being put in, which the rector had bought in Germany, the work, it was supposed, of Albert Dürer. He questioned Ernest, and finding that he was fond of music, 
he said in his old trembling voice, for he was over eighty, "'Then you should have known Dr. Burney, who wrote the history of music. I knew him exceedingly well when I was a young man.' That made Ernest's heart beat, for he knew that Dr. Burney, when a boy at school at Chester, used to break bounds that he might watch Handel smoking his pipe in the exchange coffee-house, and now he was in the presence of one who, if he had not seen Handel himself, had at least seen those who had seen him. These were oases in his desert, but as a general rule the boy looked thin and pale, and as though he had a secret which depressed him, which no doubt he had, but for which I cannot blame him. He rose, in spite of himself, higher in the school, but fell ever into deeper and deeper disgrace with the masters, and did not gain in the opinion of those boys about whom he was persuaded that they could assuredly never know what it was to have a secret weighing upon their minds. This was what Ernest felt so keenly. He did not much care about the boys who liked him, and idolized some who kept him as far as possible at a distance but this is pretty much the case with all boys everywhere. At last things reached a crisis, below which they could not very well go, for at the end of the half-year, but one after his aunt's death, Ernest brought back a document in his portmanteau, which Theobald stigmatized as infamous and outrageous. I need hardly say that I am alluding to his school bill. This document was always a source of anxiety to Ernest, for it was gone into with scrupulous care, and he was a good deal cross-examined about it. He would sometimes write in for articles necessary for his education, such as a portfolio or a dictionary, and sell the same, as I have explained, in order to eke out his pocket money, probably to buy either music or tobacco. These frauds were sometimes, as Ernest thought, in imminent danger of being discovered, and it was a load off his breast when the cross-examination was safely over. This time Theobald had made a great fuss about the extras, but had grudgingly passed them. It was another matter, however, with the character and the moral statistics with which the bill concluded. The page on which these details were to be found was as follows. Report of the Conduct and Progress of Ernest Pontifex, Upper Fifth Form, Half-Year Ending Midsummer, 1851. Classics, Idle, Listless, and Unimproving. Mathematics, Idle, Listless, and Unimproving. Divinity, Idle, Listless, and Unimproving. Conduct in House, Orderly. General Conduct, not satisfactory, on account of his great unpunctuality and inattention to duties. Monthly merit money, one shilling, sixpenny, sixpenny, zero penny, sixpenny. Total, two shillings, sixpenny. Number of merit marks, two, zero, one, one, zero, Total, four. Number of penal marks, 26, 20, 25, 30, 25. 
total? 126. Number of extra penals? 9, 6, 10, 12, 11. Total? 48. I recommend that his pocket money be made to depend upon his merit money. S. Skinner, Headmaster. Chapter 38 Ernest was thus in disgrace from the beginning of the holidays, but an incident soon occurred which led him into delinquencies compared with which all his previous sins were venial. Among the servants at the rectory was a remarkably pretty girl named Ellen. She came from Devonshire and was daughter of a fisherman who had been drowned when she was a child. Her mother set up a small shop in the village where her husband lived, and just managed to make a living. Ellen remained with her till she was fourteen, when she first went out to service. Four years later, when she was about eighteen, but so well grown that she might have passed for twenty, she had been strongly recommended to Christina, who was then in want of a housemaid, and had now been at Battersby about twelve months. As I have said, the girl was remarkably pretty. She looked the perfection of health and good temper. Indeed, there was a serene expression upon her face which captivated almost all who saw her. She looked as if matters had always gone well with her, and were always going to do so, and as if no conceivable combination of circumstances could put her for long together out of temper either with herself or with anyone else. Her complexion was clear, but high. Her eyes were grey and beautifully shaped. Her lips were full and restful, with something of an Egyptian sphinx-like character about them. When I learned that she came from Devonshire, I fancied I saw a strain of far-away Egyptian blood in her, for I had heard, though I know not what foundation there was for this story, that the Egyptians made settlements on the coast of Devonshire and Cornwall, long before the Romans conquered Britain. Her hair was a rich brown, and her figure, of about the middle height, perfect, but erring, if at all, on the side of robustness. Altogether she was one of those girls about whom one is inclined to wonder how they can remain unmarried a week or a day longer. Her face, as indeed faces generally are, though I grant they lie sometimes, was a fair index to her disposition. She was good nature herself, and everyone in the house, not excluding, I believe, even Theobald himself after a fashion, was fond of her. As for Christina, she took the very warmest interest in her, and used to have her into the dining-room twice a week, and prepare her for confirmation, for by some accident she had never been confirmed by explaining to her the geography of Palestine and the routes taken by St. Paul on his various journeys in Asia Minor. When Bishop Treadwell did actually come down to Battersby and hold a confirmation there, Christina had her wish, he slept at Battersby, and she had a grand dinner party for him and called him my lord several times. He was so much struck with her pretty face and modest demeanor when he laid his hands upon her that he asked Christina about her. When she replied that Ellen was one of her own servants, the bishop seemed, so she thought or chose to think, quite pleased that so pretty a girl should have found so exceptionally good a situation. 
Ernest used to get up early during the holidays so that he might play the piano before breakfast without disturbing his papa and mamma, or rather, perhaps, without being disturbed by them. Ellen would generally be there sweeping the drawing-room floor, and dusting while he was playing, and the boy, who was ready to make friends with most people, soon became very fond of her. He was not as a general rule sensitive to the charms of the fair sex. Indeed, he had hardly been thrown in with any women except his aunt's Alibi and his aunt Alethea, his mother, his sister Charlotte, and Mrs. J. Sometimes also he had had to take off his hat to the Miss Skinners, and he had felt as if he should sink into the earth on doing so. But his shyness had worn off with Ellen, and the pair had become fast friends. Perhaps it was well that Ernest was not at home for very long together, but as yet his affection, though hearty, was quite platonic. He was not only innocent, but deplorably, I might even say guiltily, innocent. His preference was based upon the fact that Ellen never scolded him, but was always smiling and good-tempered. Besides, she used to like to hear him play, and this gave him additional zest in playing. The morning access to the piano was indeed the one distinct advantage which the holidays had in Ernest's eyes, for at school he could not get at a piano except quasi-surreptitiously, at the shop of Mr. Pearsall, the music-seller. On returning this summer he was shocked to find his favorite looking pale and ill. All her good spirits had left her, the roses had fled from her cheek, and she seemed on the point of going into a decline. She said she was unhappy about her mother, whose health was failing, and was afraid she was herself not long for this world. Christina, of course, noticed the change. I have often remarked, she said, that those very fresh-colored, healthy-looking girls are the first to break up. I have given her calomel and James powders repeatedly, and though she does not like it, I think I must show her to Dr. Martin when he next comes here. Very well, my dear, said Theobald, and so next time Dr. Martin came, Ellen was sent for. Dr. Martin soon discovered what would probably have been apparent to Christina herself if she had been able to conceive of such an ailment in connection with a servant who lived under the same roof as Theobald and herself, the purity of whose married life should have preserved all unmarried people who came near them from any taint of mischief. When it was discovered that in three or four months more Ellen would become a mother, Christina's natural good nature would have prompted her to deal as leniently with the case as she could if she had not been panic-stricken lest any mercy on her and Theobald's part should be construed into toleration, however partial, of so great a sin. Hereon she dashed off into the conviction that the only thing to do was to pay Ellen her wages and pack her off on the instant, bag and baggage out of the house which purity had more especially and particularly singled out for its abiding city when she thought of the fearful contamination which Ellen's continued presence even for a week would occasion, she could not hesitate. Then came the question, horrid thought, as to who was the partner of Ellen's guilt. Was it, could it be, her own son, her darling Ernest? Ernest was getting a big boy now. She could excuse any young woman for taking a fancy to him. As for himself, 
why she was sure he was behind no young man of his age in appreciation of the charms of a nice-looking young woman so long as he was innocent she did not mind this but oh if he were guilty she could not bear to think of it and yet it would be mere cowardice not to look at such a matter in the face her hope was in the lord and she was ready to bear cheerfully and make the best of any suffering he might think fit to lay upon her that the baby must either be a boy or girl this much at any rate was clear no less clear was it that the child if a boy would resemble theobald and if a girl herself resemblance whether of body or mind generally leaped over a generation the guilt of the parents must not be shared by the innocent offspring of shame oh no and such a child as this would be she was off in one of her reveries at once the child was in the act of being consecrated archbishop of canterbury when theobald came in from a visit in the parish and was told of the shocking discovery Christina said nothing about Ernest, and I believe was more than half angry when the blame was laid upon other shoulders. She was easily consoled, however, and fell back on the double reflection, firstly, that her son was pure, and secondly, that she was quite sure he would not have been so, had it not been for his religious convictions which had held him back, as, of course, it was only to be expected they would. Theobald agreed that no time must be lost in paying Ellen her wages and packing her off. So this was done, and less than two hours after Dr. Martin had entered the house, Ellen was sitting beside John the coachman, with her face muffled up so that it could not be seen, weeping bitterly as she was being driven to the station. End of chapter 38 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman